Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us to try and uh, figure things out on our own, uh, but that you have stooped down and you have written in a language that we can understand your truth so that we can know who you are. From Genesis to Revelation, we, we discover who you are. We learn about who we are in your eyes. And learning that, we, we recognize our need for a Savior because we have sinned. We have fallen short of your glory. And there's nothing we can do to earn your salvation. There's no way for us to get to you in our own strength or by our own doing. But we learn in your word that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he accomplished redemption for us. He went to the cross, he the righteous one, the sinless one, and he died on that cross to pay for the sins of his people, to pay for the sins of all who would turn from sin and trust in him as their Lord and Savior. And then he rose from the dead, showing that he's a mighty Savior and that his sacrifice was enough to save forever all who would draw near to God through him. So Lord, help us as we study your word to trust Jesus more and to follow more faithfully after him, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We're looking at verses 4 through, or excuse me, verses 8 through 11. And if you picked up the notes uh, today, you'll, learn, you'll see that I stapled some additional reading for you to do at home. Uh, you know, in a sermon, you cannot say everything that could be said or even that should be said. And so that's my little cheat way to, to say more uh, than I can say on a Sunday morning. So you've heard many messages, and today's going to be another one about how Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law and how we, sh we must be careful to never revert to law-keeping to try to earn God's favor. And in hearing that message over and over again, you could come to the false conclusion that, well, I can just chuck the law out the window. You know, I don't need the Old Testament. What do I need that for? Well, that's a wrong conclusion. We use the law as believers uh, in many other ways, not to gain salvation, but for many other things. And I just wanted to add that balance uh, to the teaching here that you can look at on your own. Um, as we go further in Galatians, I'm sure we'll go over that ground but I just felt it was necessary to offer that to you to keep our, our thinking balanced and biblical. Um, but don't look at it now. You'll get distracted. That's not what the message is about this morning. So let's turn to Galatians 4. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 11. But before I read that for us, I wanted to ask you, what is one thing that many pagan religions have in common? Well, the thing that they have in common is that they subscribe to this belief, that man has to do something in order to get salvation. Whether salvation is heaven or, or, or nirvana or a, a more improved reincarnated state or just a better world, you've got to do something to get that. Now, what is it that sets the true religion of Christianity apart from those pagan religions? Well, it's this belief that God has done something to give us salvation. So pagan religions say that man must do in order to get. Christianity says that God has done in order to give. And what has God done in order to give us salvation? 
Well, we've already read it. Uh, we, we read it last week in Galatians 4. Look at verses 4 and 5. We're told what God has done to give us salvation. Paul says, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So that's what God has done. He has sent his son to become a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he sent him to live a righteous life in our place and to die an atoning death on the cross in our place and to rise from the dead so that if we would trust in him, we'd be united to him and we'd be adopted as sons and daughters of God. That's what God has done. And Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, he's laboring and he's saying it as many different ways as he can say it to remind them of that truth, that God has accomplished salvation for us. There's nothing we need to do to earn it from him. Christ earned it for us. And that is something that we need to constantly remind ourselves of. Why do we need to do that? The gospel is a simple message. I can hear it once. Why do I need to keep hearing it again and again? Well, it's because the pull of legalism, you know, that desire to justify myself before God is so subtle and so strong. We have to constantly be on guard against it. We need to constantly wash our, our hearts and our minds in the waters of the gospel so that we can maintain our complete trust in Jesus rather than in ourselves. And Paul, he's going to remind us again in another way, and in actually in a very shocking way this morning as we look at verses 8 through 11 of chapter 4. But I want to begin reading in verse 1. I want to just help us remember what the context is. Remember verses 1 and 2? What did Paul do for us in verses 1 and 2? He painted us a picture, right? He gave us an illustration. And then in verses 3 and on, he begins to apply that picture. And in verses 8 through 11, he continues to apply that picture. So let me just read the whole thing for us, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, he's, he's talking about unbelievers as being like children in that picture he painted. Also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. 
Paul here in verse 8, he begins to remind these Galatians of their lives before they came to know Christ. Let me read verse 8 again. Paul says, however, at that time, what time is that? When you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. He's reminding them of who they were before they believed in Christ. And he, he refers to the time when they did not know God. Now think back to the picture from last week. We saw five S's in that picture. You know, you had the sire or the father, you had the son, you had slave, you had stewards, and you had a span of time. When Paul says, at that time, when you did not know God, what part of that picture is he applying here? Yeah, the, the span of time, right? He's referring to that time span when they didn't know God, when they were as children, you know, they were not enjoying being the heirs of God. And he says that during that time span, before they knew God, they were what? Slaves, right? Like that child under guardians and stewards. No different from a slave. That's who they were as unbelievers. And who were the stewards that they were under? Who were the guardians and managers that they were under, according to verse 8? What's the end of the verse say? You are slaves to those which by nature are no gods. That's who they were under, pagan deities, you know, demonic false gods, those which are not gods. That's who they were under. So Paul here in verse 8, he's referring to these Galatians' pagan history. When they were not yet sons, they were not yet heirs of God. Now, Paul's language here of them being under pagan gods, it, it raises a question. At least it did for me as I was reading through uh, this section here. In chapter 3, try to remember back to chapter 3, Paul had been saying that unbelievers were under what? They were under the law. That's right, under the law. And he seemed to include Gentile unbelievers there as well. They also were under the condemnation of the law. But then when we got into chapter 4, if you look back in verse 3 of chapter 4, Paul says there that unbelievers were under what? The elemental things of the world, right? The elemental things of the world. But then in verse 5, speaking of Jesus coming to redeem unbelievers, they were said to be under what? The law. We're back under the law again, right? But now, in verse 8, Paul says that these Galatians, as unbelievers, were under pagan deities, right? So the, the question it raises is, how can, how can Gentile unbelievers be said to be under God's law and under pagan gods at the same time? So we're going to take a, just a couple minutes to try to answer that question. And it takes us back to a distinction that we observed between Jews and Gentiles back in chapter 2. So if you want to head back to chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 15, and this is in the context of Paul confronting Peter, because remember Peter had, uh, when Jews came, he started to no longer fellowship with the Gentiles, and, and Paul confronts him. 
And listen to what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 15. He says this to Peter. He says, we, him and Peter, are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. There, Paul is highlighting a, a real distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And to try to figure out what that distinction was, we went to a couple of other passages that illustrated that. Two passages, one about Jews, one about Gentiles, that we could hold side by side and, and clearly see that distinction. So let's go back to those passages to refresh our memories. First, the passage on Jews. Look at Romans 9. We're going to see uh, how Jews were distinct from Gentiles. Romans 9, in verse 3, at the end of that verse, Paul describes the Jews as his kinsmen, because he was a Jew, they're his people, his uh, kinsmen. And in verses 4 to 5, he describes them. Verse 4 of Romans 9, he says that these Jews, his kinsmen, are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants, you know, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, so on, and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Verse 5, whose are the, the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all, God blessed forever. So he, he's rehearsing the great privileges that the Jewish people had God had given them the law. He'd made covenants uh, with their fathers and with their people. Well, how about Gentiles? Let's, let's look at what distinguished Gentiles from the Jews. Let's go over to Ephesians and chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul here talks about the Gentiles, and you'll see there's a great difference in terms of, just in terms of how God dealt with them as opposed to the Jews. Ephesians 2, Paul is writing to Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, and probably most of them were Gentiles. Verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, you know, the Jews called the Gentiles uncircumcised because that's what they were. Circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Verse 12, he says, remember that you were at that time, as unbelievers, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So there's a difference there between Jew and Gentile. And the difference at least that we're focusing on in Galatians here, is this. God chose to deliver the law of Moses to Israel specifically. When Moses came down off that mountain, he had, he had uh, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, right? God didn't send him down with 30 of those things and they sent them out to the surrounding nations. No, he had one set and it was given to Israel, right? The law was given specifically to Israel, not to the surrounding nations. Yet, as we've been going through Galatians 3 and 4, Paul has been speaking as though both Jews and Gentiles are all under the law. And being under the law is to be under its 
condemnation, right? And it's easy for us to understand how that applies to Jews, right? They, they knew who the true God was. They knew that the law was binding upon them. We can understand how Paul says they're under the law. But what about Gentiles? After all, Gentiles, they served false gods. They had their own laws. And most of them were probably completely oblivious to the fact that the one true God gave his law to Israel. So in what sense can it be said that the Gentiles were under God's law while at the same time being under pagan gods? Well, to try to understand how Gentiles could be said to be under God's law, let's go back to Romans. Let's go to Romans 1. You're always so patient with me. Romans 1, and let me read uh, verses 18 through 23. It's a familiar passage. Paul is writing regarding Gentiles, Gentile unbelievers. Verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why is the wrath of God abiding on these people? Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Here we see that all men, even pagan men, even men who didn't even know there was a nation called Israel, even they know that there is a God who made all things and to whom they are accountable. And how do they know? What does Paul say? It's through creation, right? Creation testifies of that fact. But they don't listen, do they? What do they do with that knowledge? They suppress it, right? They suppress the truth. And how do they suppress it? By inventing their own gods, right? Making idols out of, uh, in, the, in the image of creatures, worshiping them instead of the one true God. So we can see that their, their, their worship of pagan deities is not owing to their ignorance, it's owing to their willful suppression of the truth. But how is it that they're under the law of God? Well, let's take a look at Romans chapter 2. Go over to Romans 2 and verse 14. Paul in verse 14 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, the law of Moses, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men, through Jesus Christ. In verse 14, Paul acknowledges that the Gentiles 
did not have the law, right? Did not have the law of Moses. So how could they be said to be under God's law? Well, the reason why that can be said of them is that God made them aware of his law, didn't he? How did he make it aware? How did they make, he make them aware of that? Through their conscience, right? Their conscience. Man, through the conscience God has given him, knows what God expects. He knows what's right and he knows what is wrong. And just as the law of Moses, written on tablets of stone, accused the Jews when they broke the law, so the consciences of pagan men and women accuse them when they defy their conscience, when they go against the work of the law that God has written on their hearts. And on the day of judgment, the consciences of pagan men and women will serve as the prosecuting attorney against them before the bar of God. They won't get to say, but God, I didn't know what you required of me. God says, I gave you a conscience, didn't I? You know what I required of you, and you did not do it. They will not get to plead total ignorance. So do you see how Paul can say that the Galatians are under the law too, under the condemnation of the law, even though they didn't have it? They're still under its condemnation. They still have broken it by defying their own consciences. So that's how Paul can say that the Galatians, as Gentile unbelievers, were under God's law while also being under pagan gods that they had invented and that they were worshiping, right? So as unbelievers, the Galatians were under the condemnation of God's law and they were under the sway of the demonic false gods that they had worshipped. So you could say they were doubly enslaved, right? Doubly enslaved. How about unbelievers today? Are, are unbelievers today any less enslaved? No, they're not. They still have a conscience. They still violate their conscience. They are still condemned before God for violating his law and the work of his law that he wrote on their hearts. And although they are, I guess, more sophisticated, you know, being that way in their eyes, they dismiss false gods, right? And they don't believe in any God whatsoever. But that's actually a greater folly, right? They dismiss all gods at all, and they prop themselves up as gods instead. So unbelievers today are no different. And, and Paul is saying to these Galatians, that's where you were before you believed in Jesus. You were under those, those false gods. Back in Galatians 4, as we move into verse 9, Paul, in verse 9, he's going to help the Galatians realize the folly of returning to paganism slash legalism. He's going to help them realize how foolish a thing that would be. So let's look at verse 9. Paul says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. Here, Paul turns to the Galatians' present experience as believers in Jesus Christ. And as believers in Christ, he describes them how? He describes them as having come to know God. That is, they have entered into a covenant relationship with God. And this knowing that Paul talks about, it's not merely knowing facts about God, right? 
When I say I know my kids and they know me, I'm obviously talking about more than just knowing facts about them. I'm talking about having a relationship with them. And that's the sense in which Paul uses that word to know. But then Paul, he rephrases it, doesn't he? He doesn't just say, now that you've come to know God, he almost catches himself. He says, or rather, to be known by God. There's something prior to us knowing God, and it's him knowing us, right? Him knowing us is the only reason why we have come to know him. How did we come to know him? Did we just stumble upon him? Did we seek really hard and and finally find him, and now we get to take credit for finding him? No. As unbelievers, we were what? We were dead in sin. And as being dead in sin, were we seeking God? No, we weren't. Paul says in Romans 3, verse 11, he says that there is none who seeks for God. None of us were looking for him. And Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the only reason we come to Jesus is because God drew us to him. The only reason we started seeking God was because he sought us. The only reason we found God was because he found us. If you will, uh, turn back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We've come to know God only because he first knew us. He first chose to enter into a relationship with us. And this is reflected in Romans chapter 8. Take a look at verses 29 to 30 there. Paul says, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul there, he gives us the unbreakable sequence of salvation. And once you get started on that road, you end up at the last stop, which is glorification. But in, Acts, or in Romans 8, what is the first act of God that initiates that whole unbreakable chain? Even before predestining us, what, what did God do? He foreknew us, right? He foreknew us. The only reason we'll get glorified is because he foreknew us from before the foundation of the world. So that's what Paul's talking about in Galatians 4, verse 9. And he follows up that little reminder with a question. He says, now that you've come to know God, on the basis of having been known by God, here's his question, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. Remember back to last week where we talked about the law of Moses in relation to the elemental things of the world. And we saw there how Paul had basically taken the law and put it on the same level as the elemental things of the world. Just as no one can be saved by the world's principles of doing things, no one can be saved by doing the law. And it's in that sense they're kind of on the same level. Well, here in verse 9, what else is Paul putting on the level of elemental things? 
In verse 8, he says, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. And then in verse 9, he asks, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Paul, by saying that the Galatians are turning back again to the elemental things, shows that he considered the pagan gods to fit under that category of elemental things. Because that's what they were saved out of, right? This is quite shocking when you think about it. And it would probably be extremely offensive to any Jews who were reading the letter to the Galatians. The Galatians were saved out of paganism. But what are they being tempted to go to? Are they being tempted to go back to paganism? No, they're being tempted to go to what? Yeah, the law, to Judaism, right? They're looking to enslave themselves to the law of Moses, not to the the pagan deities they left. But in Paul's mind, for the Galatians to go to Judaism is no better than if they were to go back to paganism. Either way, it's a return to the, the weak and worthless elemental things. So Paul here, he sees the elemental things of the world as this broader category that includes both the law of Moses and false gods. Now, how can Paul do that? How can he say that? Well, remember the context in which he's writing. He's writing about how a man is what before God? Justified. How does a man get justified before God? How does a man get right with God? The law of Moses can no more save a man than Baal of the Canaanites or Dagon of the Assyrians or Zeus of the Greeks. It's in that sense that they both, the law and false gods, fit under that umbrella of the elemental things of the world. You can't get to God through either of those ways. They're both weak and worthless when it comes to salvation and justification. Just to to help support this, let's go over to Hebrews chapter 7. I want you to see what the preacher to the Hebrews says about the law in chapter 7. Paul has just stuck the law right alongside false gods under the category of weak and worthless elemental things. Is he right for doing that in the sense in which he's saying it? Well, what does the preacher to the Hebrews say? Look at verse 18 of chapter 7. He says, For on the one hand there is a setting aside of a former commandment, that's the law of Moses, that's the old covenant, Why is there a setting aside of it? Because of its what? Its weakness and uselessness. Why is it weak and useless? Verse 19. Or in what sense is it weak and useless? Verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. The law can't make us right with God. We can't get justified by God by doing what the law says because none of us does what the law says. And because of that, what does God do for us? He says, verse 19, on the other hand, there's the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. 
God sent Jesus to institute the new covenant by his blood. And in that covenant, we have forgiveness. And in that covenant, we have power to live for God, having been saved by God. So the law of Moses that God gave to the Israelites, it really is holy and righteous and good, as Paul emphatically says back in Romans 7. But when it comes to saving souls, the law is weak and useless because that's not the purpose of the law. You know, a hammer has a great many uses and is a wonderful thing, but if you're trying to fix a rip in your sweater, it's useless, right? And it's like that with the law. The law is not intended to justify us, right? When you turn to the law as a way to get yourself to God, when you twist the law into something by which you try to earn salvation, you're using the law for something that God never intended it to be used for. And actually, when you reject the way of salvation that God has provided through Christ, and you try to get there some other way by, through, by the law, what have you done? You've landed yourself in the same boat that the pagans are in. You're not getting any further than the pagans are getting with their false gods. If you try to get there with the law, you're not going to get any further than the pagans are with Baal or Zeus or whatever. You're trusting in something that cannot save you. Coming to verses 10 and 11 of Galatians 4, Paul is going to try to help the Galatians to recognize the signs that they are actually trying to do that. They're trying to go back to a dead-end road. He has begun to see signs in the Galatians of their return to the elemental things of the world. Look at verse 10. Paul says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. Here we find out that the Galatians have already begun trying to live by the law. They haven't been circumcised yet, Circumcision would be kind of the defining moment of their full conversion into Judaism. They haven't done that yet, but they are taking Judaism out for a test drive, if you will. They are trying to obey certain things that the law of Moses says. And the law prescribed certain observances revolving around the calendar of the Jewish year, right? And that's what these Galatians have begun doing. They've begun observing certain days, like the Sabbath. They've been observing certain months, like maybe the first month of the Jewish year, when you would celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover. They're observing special seasons, like maybe the laws surrounding the harvest. They're observing special years, like maybe the Sabbath year, where you would let the land go fallow. Uh, or the Jubilee year, when you would return um, what had been leased to the, uh, to the original owner. That's what they're doing. And the, the Greek word for observe here, it means to carefully observe tradition or custom. It could be translated observe scrupulously. So it's something they were being very careful to observe. They were observing scrupulously days and months and seasons and years. They are very close to believing that justification is not by faith alone, that they got to do this other stuff. They're in process. So you can see why Paul is so urgent 
in the way he's writing. They're actually on their way to that. Now, the Judaizers, when they came in behind Paul and began to edit the message he had given, they're likely not saying to, the, the, to these Galatians, Paul was all wrong. You've got to just throw out everything he said. Listen to us. We're going to reinvent the wheel for you. No, they were likely just saying, listen, we got a minor adjustment here. Paul said important things. Yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to tack on the law if you want to get saved. Yeah, believe in Jesus, but you got to do this as well. But Paul, through the letter to the Galatians, he's letting them know that to do what the Judaizers are saying is not a minor adjustment. It's not just a little wrinkle to the message he gave. He's letting these Galatians know that putting themselves back under the law would be a return to the same dead-end road that they had been on before as pagans. It would be a full-blown rejection of Jesus and of the God who had called them to salvation. When you go to a, a car dealership and you park the car and you get out of your car, chances are a salesman is going to spot you and he's going to swoop down on you like a vulture. No offense to car, car salesmen. But that's what he's going to do. He's going he's to come up to you with a smile plastered on his face and he's going to ask you how he can help you. And you try to brush him off by saying, oh, I'm just looking. You're hoping he just will leave you alone in peace to look. But he follows that question up. He says, what are you looking for? And you tell him, oh, I'm, I'm looking for such and such. And predictably, he says, I've got just the thing for you. And he takes you over to a nice, shiny new car. And then what does he say? How about a test drive, right? Why does he want you to take a test drive? Because he wants you to get in it. He wants you to smell the new car smell. He wants you to feel the plush seat under your butt. He wants you to feel the power of the engine as you race down the road. He wants you to see yourself in this car, see how good you look, how happy your wife will be if you bring this car home, how excited your kids will be. And you think to yourself, well, what's it going to hurt if I just take it out for a spin? So you take the test drive. doesn't matter that you can't afford it. You take the test drive. And then, once your eyes have sufficiently glazed over, you tell yourself that I cannot afford to not get this car. I have to get this car. It's the right thing to do. And before you know it, you take out a monster loan and you've sold your soul to get that car. The Galatians are taking a test drive with something they cannot afford to commit themselves to. And we need to ask ourselves, are we taking legalism for a test drive? Are there certain things that maybe they're fine to do, but we're doing them because we think that this is going to make me more acceptable to God? Are there certain things you do and observe scrupulously, not because out of faith you're wanting to obey the Lord, but because fearfully you're thinking, I've got to do this or you know, God's not going to accept me. I've got to do this to earn salvation. There are many people out there who are selling that kind of alternate form of Christianity, like the Judaizers were doing. And you're familiar with these folks. You have Jehovah's Witnesses. They come to your door. 
You have Mormonism, they, they greet you on the street. You have the Roman Catholic Church. You have the Greek Orthodox Church. You have dead liberal churches. And they present themselves as believing what the Bible says, just like the Judaizers. But they all subtly and not so subtly add works to the equation of justification. In each of these religious systems, good works of some sort forms the basis of you being made right with God. Jesus plus equals getting saved. They all say, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to do X, Y, and Z, and then you will be saved. But these practitioners, these teachers of these systems, they don't realize that by monkeying with the gospel message, they have become just like every other pagan religion out there, doing something to get salvation. They're no different. They're under that same category of elemental things of the world as all the pagan religions. They are standing shoulder to shoulder with the pagans on the broad road that leads to destruction. So when they come up and they say, just get into the car, just take a drive, just come to the service, check it out, see how you like it, don't take that test drive. And if you're in that car, get out of that car. Because if you keep going down that road, you might, not, you might start to think, I can't afford to not go all the way with this thing. You need to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and on his all-sufficiency for you as a Savior, as the Savior. Through faith in him, you're already a son or daughter of God. There's nothing else you need to do to get Christ has done all to give. Lastly, let's look at verse 11. This tells you how serious Paul is about what he's been writing and why he's so passionate in what he's writing. Verse 11, he says, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Think back to your own Christian testimony. Someone led you to faith in Christ. Someone took great risk to bring the gospel to you, risking your rejection of him or her. They planted a gospel seed in you, and others labored to water the, those gospel seeds by praying for you and continuing to bring God's word to you. If you convert to one of those imposter forms of Christianity, or if you invent your own little legalistic form of Christianity, their labor over you will have been in vain. They will not see you in heaven if you go down that road because you are still under the curse of the law because you're not accepting what Jesus did for you. You might think you are, but by polluting the gospel waters with your own works, you have completely blown apart that foundation of salvation that Jesus died to give to you. So don't let that happen. Trust in Jesus alone as your Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Father, your word is so clear and so helpful to us. Lord, as we've gone through Galatians, we've seen all these different ways Paul has explained how, how justification is by faith alone and Christ alone. We really 
unless we've been sleeping, we don't have any excuse to fall for those who come along and say, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to do something in order to earn salvation. Lord, we thank you that your word doesn't let us uh, fall for that if we pay attention to it. So we thank you for what a firm foundation you have given us in your word, telling us how to be saved. It's by turning from our sins and trusting in Jesus alone to save us. It's by abandoning all our efforts to earn your favor and putting all our hope in what Christ alone has done to, to, to put us in the position to experience your favor. Lord, keep us believing in Jesus. Keep us standing firm on him alone, Lord. Help us to flee from idols, flee from things that would uh, turn us away from him. Keep us, and we thank you that you will keep us. In Jesus' name, amen.